Hi, I'm Ray from Insert Quest here. My pronouns are they, them. This morning we're talking to Michael Meinberg, a game maker and innovative creator from the United States. It is a joy to have you on the show this morning. Uh, would you mind telling our listeners a little bit more about yourself? All right, uh, I'm Meinberg. I use uh, Don, Don pronouns. And uh, I've been game designing and publishing for about a year now. Um, I live in the United States. And uh, I guess I'm agender and I'm neurodivergent. And I think that does influence my game design quite a bit. Yes, of course. Um, so I would like to start by asking you uh, how you first got interested in making games. Um, and, I, uh, and I guess what I'm asking is how you moved from, make, from playing games to making games, which is normally the trajectory that we see, mm-hmm. but yeah. <laughs> so I started playing D&D basic red box edition when I was six years old. Uh, and then from there, uh, I played in my community there for a little bit and then we moved off to another community because I'm from a military family. We move around a lot. And after that point, I didn't really have a community to play with. So I spent a lot of time reading books, thinking about running games. The very first game I designed, uh, I think I was like nine or so, and I had to do a report on dinosaurs. And so I made a board game about dinosaurs as my report. And since then, I've kind of moved, as I grew older, I moved into kind of doing a lot of uh, homebrewing stuff. And then... What kind of of stuff did you homebrew? Uh, The main thing I remember... Okay, I was playing third edition D&D, and I made a mecha game based off of that. Uh, and I just kind of retooled the system a bit, kind of changed the scale up, took away scaling hit points, and it kind of worked out pretty interesting. I, and- have, I have a source book for D20 Future, uh, a third-party book, rather, uh, mm-hmm. for building mecha in what is essentially D&D. <laughs> it actually works really well and it fits in with the game feel of it. Cause you oh yeah, like, because cause characters in D&D are based on battleships. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, yeah, and then you said you moved on to some other uh, games. Yeah, I read Apocalypse World and that kind of like blew my mind. Actually, no, I read Apocalypse World. I was like, okay, this is interesting. They read Polaris and then I read Apocalypse World again. It's like, oh... Here's why Apocalypse World is such a revelation. And then from then, I, I uh, started doing the Golden Cobra LARP design contest and started tooling around with some independent ideas there. I started going to Metatopia, the game design conference in Morristown, New Jersey. Uh, that brings people in from all over the world, really. And I just started thinking about game design, thinking about game design. And I finally, I reached a point where I, like, I've been talking about game design on my blog for a few years now. I either have to put up or shut up. And so I joined a game jam on itch and I published a game. Which game jam was that? Oh, which game jam was that? Let's look at my <laughs> page. I may have, my first one may, may have not actually been a game jam game, but uh, pretty soon after that. Uh, yeah. For wizard jam, uh, oh, March of the yeah. wizards, two gay 19. Yeah, I remember. I remember seeing the Wizards Jam and having a bunch of ideas, and it was um, it was the first game jam I had seen after after having taken part in the emotional mecha game jam. And yeah. I was like, oh, I should keep doing game jams. And then I was <laughs> looked at it. I'm like, oh, I've got so much I'm working on. 
Yeah. <laughs> so I just wrote down a bunch of ideas. And then that became how I engaged with game jams because uh, of because of my ADHD, I can't always commit to doing uh, a game jam. So I will write yeah. down ideas that I get from looking at them and then I can always come back to it. Uh, but there is a certain... There is still a certain level of stuff that you miss out on that uh, by doing that because of the fact that you don't get to uh, jump on the essentially free advertising aspect of that yeah. if you circle back around later. Um, I also uh, really like the the deadline. Mm, that it the, gives me a structure that I have to work within. Yeah. Because if I don't have a deadline, eh, I might take three, four months to write a playbook. But by having... A, by having limits by having deadlines i'm able to structure my work a little bit better yeah see a deadline gets in the way for me because mm -hmm. uh yeah i need to make deadlines very large and vague but also still need to be somewhat concrete like if i start a project in january i need to have a deadline of before february is over or yeah. uh before the year ends or something <laughs> like that i can't be like this date specifically in two mm. weeks because that's just not going to happen <laughs> um and it might even be that i do like all the work at the beginning and then none of the polish and then it, but it still gets in the way yeah. um that deadline just sort of makes it harder for me um but also not it's very odd uh brains are weird yeah indeed you mentioned the golden cobra competition which i am very passingly familiar with but i don't think anyone has ever mentioned it on the show so I was wondering if you could explain what that is and what you like about it uh, to our listeners. Sure. So uh, Jason, Jason Morningstar uh, and a few other people, mostly in the LARP community, are like, we want more independent games, small freeform games to run at LARPs or to run at conventions. They want stuff that would fit into a uh, two to four hour time slot. And they want things that could have a variable number of people and so they have this very practical consideration. And so they put out this lit, they put out the, the game contest, and they got a massive, massive response to it. Like hundreds of games every year are being submitted to the Golden Cobra. Um, like, and then basically what they do is they, they look them over. Each judge picks a favorite, and they have also categories for, for the winners. Um, and they, they pick them out, and they, they, all, the LARP, all the LARPs go onto a website, the Golden Cobra LARP website, where you can find and download them and play them for your local game or your local space if you have like yeah um and it just grew and grew and grew every year they do a award ceremony at metatopia because it is about game design i think ultimately that's 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 why i like it so much because it's not as much about let's put a published product out there as so much as let's see what's weird let's make something that we haven't seen before uh i like that innovative edge to things like last year they even had a uh, john darneal the mountain goats uh judge a category which i thought was really cool right that's cool. uh it sounds uh it reminds me of the 200 word rpg challenge which i yes. think feel occupies a similar space um but maybe with a bit more polish in the case of the golden cobra like it's attached to this uh physical space which um, yeah. which the 200 word RPG challenge is not. Um, that does lead nicely though, into talking about Metatopia. Uh, I don't think that, I think, I think a lot of our listeners might've heard of Metatopia, um, but not by 
quite be sure what it is. My understanding is that it is a game convention targeting role-playing and board games and LARPs um, and card games and physical games um, and is intended as a space to uh, give you access to a wide range of playtesters. It's meant to be this kind of meeting point between people that make games and people that want to help games get made, people that want to test games. Uh, and it's almost like a semi-professional uh, playtesting uh, space. Semi-professional in that the people are fans, but uh, take giving that feedback uh, seriously. Uh, how close did I get in my description? <laughs> I think that your description is pretty accurate. Um, the language I use to describe it is a game design conference. Uh, we can still use the term con. So it's mm -hmm. conference, con, uh, in, in contrast to a convention. Because it's less about fun, I guess. It's, it, it's a fun experience, but it's not, the fun is secondary to the developing of skills and developing of talents and developing of design muscle. Uh, the playtesting is absolutely very important. Uh, you can bring your game, get playtested. You can playtest other games. You can develop your playtesting skills. You can see a vast variety of games that some of them may never actually get published. Uh, although there has been a move lately, which I, I don't like, towards having more pol polished games, more games ready to be published at the convention. I like it when they're a little bit more raw. But people need the insight, and they need it as a marketing tool because a lot of influencers come to Metatopia. A lot of uh, American podcasters come to Metatopia uh, to talk about it. And what they see then gets promoted on their, on their podcast, which then gives marketing for like a Kickstarter or a published game, which is fine. It's, it's not my, my natural urge when I go to Metatopia, though. My, my urge is more, I want to bring something weird, something raw, something that doesn't work, and see how I can make it work. Right. Yeah, that makes sense, because... So you, you sort of, yeah, there's going to be different approaches to that space. Some people yeah. want to get that design feedback early on uh, before putting the polish on, whereas others just want to make sure it's not going to fall apart yes. uh, when it meets with point of sale, um, which is a very different attitude to playtesting. Uh, very few of my games that are published have been playtested, oh, yeah. uh, actually. I don't think have any been playtested <laughs> i don't think any of my games have been playtested two of them almost all of them actually i haven't played at all uh <laughs> and some of them uh i didn't and that means that most of them in fact all of them i didn't play before they were published uh i've <laughs> i've published like six games i've played two of those i think <laughs> And one of them I didn't fully play. The other one I've played a lot. Um, <laughs> but none of them I played before they were published um, because, I don't know, in my mind, they were mechanically simple enough that I could see the parts were going to fit together. Yeah. Uh, and then others, it didn't really matter if it worked or not. Yeah. Uh, it only mattered that it existed. Uh, I think two of my games have been played ever by anyone, which is oh, fine. Wow. I think people have read my games. And we'll bring up that discourse and say that reading a game is a valid way of engaging with a game. Indeed. There's Indeed. so many games that exist that are not even... Well, it's not that they're not meant to be played. 
their but being played is not their primary uh means of consumption um yeah my games uh arosha and uh the binding and drawing of power primarily exist to help you think about think more innovate more more innovatively no to think more uh, about what a game can look like uh and also to think more about how you can communicate aspects of yourself with others because both of them are in a similar design space of which actually was not their intended goal uh but i found this after i designed them uh both of them are in a similar design space of uh this game is a way of giving a semi-rigid formula to a particular type of discussion that is important to human relationships. One of those being flirting and another one being talking about uh, traumatic memories with someone that you want to build a deeper connection. Uh, Can you tell me a bit more about games that you have where you didn't intend for them to be or rather, you didn't give as much consideration to them being played than other people might think is important to a game. Do you have a game similar to that? Uh, my game, Breaking Down, Breaking Through, is a very archaic, I won't say very early form of a lyric game where it's much more of a, it's a poem. It's definitely a, a poem, but that's described as a series of instructions, uh, which I think turns into a game. Yeah. And so you can read it. And even if you don't directly engage with it on a conscious level, you're still playing the game in the process of reading it. Yeah, for sure. Uh, uh, and what is, what is that game about? What does it explore? It's, it's about depression. It's about being in the pit of a depressive mood and knowing that it is possible to keep going, that you don't have to break down, so to speak. Or if you do break down, you can still move forward through it. It's about coming to an understanding of the self through these moments of great existential pain. You've written a few games that explore themes adjacent to that from what I can see. I recently played your game Cyber Knights, which is arguably about looking inward and uh, confronting aspects of your uh, psyche, to make yourself more resilient, uh, mm-hmm. even if you don't come through the other side uh, feeling stronger, uh, you will be for having uh, turned the inward eye. Uh, what are some of the other games that you've designed in that space, and what about those kinds of narratives uh, are interesting? I think all of my solo games have that as an aspect. Uh, no one lives here anymore. I designed as a direct response to the, the passing of my mother, and it's kind of dealing with that emotional turmoil, turmoil and forming a structure around it, trying to understand physical spaces in relationship to grief. Uh, and then The Warrior's Journey was my other single-player game, which is about coming to understand one's relationship with violence, one's understand one's relationship with war, uh, and how, to a degree, our indulging in violence makes us culpable in violence. 
and how we need to understand the context in which violence takes place and the context in which it shapes us uh, and really look at the ways that our society structures reactions to the perpetrators of state violence. And for me, this kind of design is so important because I feel like it's something that only games can do to a degree of making us engage with these systems and understand these systems and breaking through our layers of, of mental protections, as it were, and to get to the, the inner core of our being where we can truly embrace these concepts and then move out from them and grow as people. Yeah. Sick. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, yeah. Wow. Uh, I kind of want to change gears quickly um, before getting into uh, a project that you have on Kickstarter, I want to talk about a game that you recently released that is kind of in an interesting model. You made a game that is called, hang on, there is a name for it, that is called Shepherds Through the Ash and Flame, um, where you take on the role of a wombat trying to... Uh, herd uh, other animals into their burrow during the devastating Australian bushfires that just recently, uh, well, the mega fires that recently mm -hmm. devastated much of Australia. Um, you sort of made this a game about that as a way of trying to drive people to donate to um, various charity organisations trying to help deal with those fires. Um, mm -hmm. I just would love to know more about anything you want to share about that because it's such an interesting um idea well i'll start by saying that the stories that were reported of the wombats doing the herding may not be entirely true but they did open up their their burrows and they did allow small animals into them so wombats need to be recognized for being their heroic actions i think i mean that very sincerely and it just these kind of fires, these kind of environmental catastrophes are not going to stop happening unless we take actions on a political level. And I feel strongly that people are not going to, are not able to change their political views unless they are confronted with a truth in a way that they're capable of understanding it. And I think that for so many people of our age and younger, games are the way that we form our identity and our political understanding of the world to a degree. And that a game like this is useful not only for channeling people to charities, but to uh, helping people to understand that we can change things, we can make things better, and that the people who are doing nothing are in some ways culpable for the things that are happening. And to kind of encourage people to engage with things on a more political level and to understand that they have a voice and they have power. Um, and that they have the responsibility to use it. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's an interesting topic to be writing about, uh, and also it's interesting to try and make a game about that, uh, I feel. Yeah. Have you made any other games that kind of try to do stuff like that? I think that is my most overtly political game. Uh, the only one that comes close would probably be Gender Repeal Party, which is a LARP about... Uh, not being cis anymore right. and embracing transness and embracing not being non-binary. And I built that one because I'm tired of almost every LARP about the queer experience being about the age crisis and about how much it hurts to be, to be queer. And there are absolutely hard parts of being queer. 
but I think there's also a joy that can be celebrated in it. Is that a thing that LARPs focus on a lot? Surprisingly so. Like one of the biggest, one of the most popular Nordic LARPs that's played in the United States is Just a Little Loving, which takes place during the AIDS crisis. Right. What an, I mean, yeah, okay. Hmm. Nordic LARPs likes, likes to be very sad. Okay. Is it, do you think that it might be a component of, I don't know the demographics of the North American LARP community. Mm-hmm. Do you think that maybe the community has a lot of older queer people in it? And so they are trying to explore this aspect of their history. Cause I definitely find that for a lot of younger queer people, the AIDS crisis is a thing that many of them are aware of, but it's not a core component of their identity. Whereas for a lot of older queer people, that's like a big part of who they are is the fact that they came through this or they know people that came through this. I feel like it's an attempt for those younger queer people to connect with the history, to connect with that massive tragedy and failure of the government to help and to kind of form those bonds that would not otherwise have existed and to acknowledge that they are inheritors of this event and that they are living in a context in which the AIDS crisis happened. Uh, and I don't, I don't think there are that many. I don't know for sure. I am not as engaged with the LARP community as I, as I used to be. Not a LARP uh, anthropologist. Yeah. Uh, but I feel like the older community of LARPers that I know of there are some queer people, but they are mostly not. Mm. And that the and that the younger LARPers I know are overwhelmingly queer, uh, to like almost but more than majority status. There you go. Yeah, interesting. Um, so you have a Kickstarter to completely shift the conversation. Yes. Um, uh, and it's for a wizard. It's it's part of Zine Quest, which mm-hmm. um is for those that don't know is a uh program that kickstarter ran last year where they uh were giving uh essentially free advertising and pushing um projects that were part of this uh thing called zine quest where you would make zines about role-playing games or associated with role-playing games with rpg content uh in them and then this year they came back and they were like, we're doing it again. It's Zine Quest 2. <laughs> um, and so lots of people have been uh, making stuff for that. Uh, I want you to tell us more about what you've made for that. Uh, and what, uh, yeah, so I guess let's start with what is your Zine Quest project and what is it about? Uh, my Zine Quest project is called The New Tales of Oz. And it's uh, set in the land of Oz. It's created by L. Frank Baum. Uh, it is legally distinct from the movies. I'm not allowed to talk about the movies because those are under copyright, but the books are not under copyright. So I am free to talk about them as much as I like. And I think I think what really inspired me to get going on this was looking at the art, looking at the, these books, looking at how weirdly feminist they were for their time, and like thinking about ways in which they are still relevant to a modern audience and the way that they're, they're surprisingly, like they're really funny still. And they're really charming still. And yes, there are some points where I'm like, hmm, okay. All right, we're just going to move past that. Like in the second book, there's a, uh, a group of women who uh, stage a communist revolution in the Emerald City, and they're portrayed as the villains. We're going to just change that. We're going to change that perspective a little bit. Uh, I really think that it's, 
is an amazing setting because of how fun it is. And I don't do a lot of fun games, as you might have guessed. <laughs> you might have picked up on that trend. But I feel like that having fun games is, is useful. And having fun games that uh, are maybe a little more story gamey, a little bit more light on the rules that maybe can appeal to all ages and have a new way for younger people to enter the hobby that aren't D&D. Uh, &D. Uh, I think there's a use to that. I think there, there's importance to that. And I think that sometimes it's nice to just, you know, relax and have a fun game with your friends. Yeah. Um, I, I recently wrote a zine that's like 2A4, like 1A4 page or something. <laughs> um, that is very over the top and pulpy and, and silly um, mm -hmm. and is fun uh, in a kind of uh, Mad Max kind of way. Um, so I am there with you on that. Um, I seem to recall that your ZineQuest project is featuring a lot of public domain art. Is that yes. correct? Can you want to, can you tell us a bit more about that and how you, why you made that decision and how you found that uh, art? So first of all, I don't have much money. Yep, very, <laughs> and people have a certain expectation for RPG books of any size, of any scale, that they're going to have art in them. Uh, probably good art. I think, there's, I think there's a portion out there who buy RPG books as art books. And that's great. And I, that audience is, is wonderful. And I'm sure they're having fun with their books. And I just can't afford that kind of good art. So I look for public domain art. And it drives a lot of my publishing decisions. If I'm going to make a game about something, I need to be able to have art that I can use for it. And so I, I, I think it started after I watched one of the movies. I looked up to see if Oz was in the public domain. And when I saw it was, like, huh, were those books illustrated? And I started doing some research, trying, did, some more, did some more research. And I wound up buying the entire series of books that uh, L. Frank Baum had written with the original illustrations in them. Yeah, wow. And then I also discovered that all the illustrations are available on uh, Project Gutenberg. But I like having the physical physical artifacts. They were they were Christmas presents, so I can feel good with them in my collection. Um, but yeah, and just like leafing through it, it's like, oh, wow. I remember this scene from the movie that I'm not going to talk about. And from, <laughs> from the sequel, I remember this from the sequel, which I'm also not allowed to talk about. But like seeing TikTok and Jack Pumpkinhead and uh, Ozma seeing all these characters that I had known from these other sources in their original context was like, oh, this is amazing. And the art is just so fun. It's amazing art. Like there's this one that I discovered of uh, Glinda talking to a bunch of the people from, from the second book. And they're just kind of sitting there listening. And it's totally just like they're playing a game of, of uh, a tabletop role-playing game around the table. It's like, this is, the this is an amazing image. It's so perfect. <laughs> That's, uh, I, yeah, that's wonderful. Uh, it's using public domain art is only like, well, old public domain art is something that I've only recently just started doing. And it is, if you, when you can find the perfect piece to like go with your project, mm -hmm. it's so good. But the whole time that you spend searching for that perfect <laughs> pre piece sucks. Uh, cause the indexing is just, uh, not super great. Yeah. Um, have you used a lot of open source stuff? Because there is a difference between, for our listeners, there is a difference between yeah. public domain and um, free use. Uh, so public domain is normally stuff that's really old, 
uh, whereas free use is stuff where the uh, or open source or whatever is stuff where the uh, original license holder has explicitly made it to be shared. Whereas with public domain, it's so old that its copyright is no longer valid. Which, by the way, used to be way less. <laughs> but then Disney came along and was like, hmm. It used to be like five, your copyright ran out on a project, on a project, on a project, on a thing, on a piece of art, five years after it was published. Yeah. And then they changed it to like 25 years. And then they changed it to, uh, I think, 75. Then it was, no, they changed it. Yeah, they changed it to like 75. Then they changed it to life of author plus yeah. whatever, which doesn't hold up with a corporation because if a corporation publishes yeah. a game, it doesn't have a life. Or if a <laughs> publishes a movie, it doesn't have a life. The corporation doesn't have a lifespan. It can't die. It's so stupid. It's the yeah. dumbest fucking law I have ever seen that is was so clearly wrong the minute they did it yeah life of author what if what if ford publishes a book what if the company ford <laughs> publishes a book you're not wrong uh, uh, yeah how much yeah. open source stuff have you used because i used a lot of that on my game um last night's on earth uh canva has a bunch of open source stuff in it uh, and then there's also to find some line art for some sick pistols and some sick <laughs> supercars, muscle cars rather. I had to go to uh, like an open source free use line art um, website where they just mm -hmm. had heaps of shit. And a lot of it was terrible and some of it was good. Literally every piece of art in my books that's not in the Kickstarter that's coming burning right now mm -hmm. is from an open source location that I have then put some filters on. Uh, made black and white maybe or you know did some alterations to it to make it fit into a more abstract feel because they're all, the place i go to is all photos and they're amazing they're great photos but also people aren't expecting photo references in their books so i do filters on them so they look a little bit less realistic and that's literally literally every piece of art in every game i've made has come from pixabay a lot uh, of the Pixab a lot of the RPGC people, um, which uh, is a community of role-playing game makers based in Southeast Asia uh, and Southeast Asian countries, um, a lot of them use images like photos rather than uh, art in their stuff. In particular, I'm thinking of um, Jammy and uh, Swords and Flowers, for example, will use um, like not stock photos, but photos um, with uh, in their games. Um, so, and I do, and it is quite striking. So it's interesting that you're kind of hitting this midpoint between, yes, I'm using photos, but I'm also putting a bunch of um, filters and treatments on them so that they look less like photos, I guess, is what I'm trying to talk about. Uh, do you, yeah, sorry. I was going to say, do you think that those designers have influenced your visual design for your games? Because visual design for games is something we don't super often talk about on in Circus Two. I think I'm drawing a lot of inspiration from like uh, the Monster Hearts playbooks mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and how they were stock photos that were then 
digitally altered so they look like line drawings. Yeah, which is an Apocalypse World thing originally, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah. Which also kind of comes from, not directly, but I wouldn't be surprised uh, if uh, Vincent got the idea from, or whoever did the layout, visual design for Apocalypse World, if they got the idea from some of the World of Darkness books. Because the World of Darkness books, which, like the, the mid 2000 ones, which I want to say, I think look hideous like almost universally look hideous uh i'm sure there are people that disagree with that (laughs) but uh they do this weird thing where they take illustration and stock photography or photography that they have and they blend them together in this weird multi-textural not a fan of that one and so you have photos that look like parts of them have been spliced with illustrations because they have been. <laughs> so it could almost be a sort of response to that where it's like, oh, what if we did this, but it looked good <laughs> instead of looked just like... The worst. God, it just does not look good. Yeah. It, it looks like someone <laughs> tried to cover up the fact that they were using a photo rather yeah. than tried to do something new with a photo. Um, yeah, it just looks tacky. Whereas in Apocalypse World and Monster Hearts and uh, and other modern games, like your own stuff, it looks, it can look a lot better. Because um, it's, it's consistent. It's a, it's a consistent style. Yeah. And, it's, and it feels like a choice, like a deliberate choice, rather than a, we have to fix this. Yeah, 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 exactly. We have to make this look more spooky. <laughs> <laughs> but now I do wonder, like, maybe I should be using more just photographs without the editing, because that might be more visually striking. That might draw eyes in that might not might not otherwise be looking at the project. Yeah, maybe. It's possible. Um, I mean, it's also kind of important to, main, to obtain a... Well, not kind of important, but it can be useful to have a distinct visual style. Um, yeah. It's an interesting part about making being an indie RPG publisher and being like, I mean, effectively, we are using techniques that are very similar to what scenesters and stuff have been using for the last few, well, for the last mm-hmm. decade at least. Um, and that is how most of us are making our RPGs, which is always why it is funny to me when people are... I find it humorous that there's a lot of people that are like, oh, yeah, how do you make a zine, though? I'm like... Uh, you've been making your own RPGs, doing your own layout and doing your own visual stuff for like a year, at least most of you. All you've got to do in most cases is turn it sideways and fold it in half. Uh, you've just got to switch it from A4 to A5, uh, print it on an A4 sheet of paper side by side and then fold it. <laughs> and you have a zine. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, I'll take your money as a as a consultant on how to make zines out of role playing games. Like, don't <laughs> work it out. That's fine. Uh, and you know, it can be difficult if you have a larger project with multiple pages to work out how to do that. Yeah. But it's interesting how there is that sharing of techniques, um, whether intentional or not, um, about how to make a zine. Um, have you? You have this scene quest project and it's mm-hmm. something that I really want to find out 
if I had the opportunity to interview everyone running a ZineQuest project, this is something that I would ask them is what has been your experience with zines prior to doing a ZineQuest? And that, I don't just mean what have you made? I mean, have you bought zines before? Have you been to a zine fair? Uh, do you have, had you looked at zines before having made one and what kind of zines had caught your eye? Um, back in like the early 2010s, maybe a little earlier, I was real big into poetry slams. And so I would go yes. to these poetry uh, slam meetings and I would pick up the zines that people would pub- put out of their published stuff. I think that's really when I first started looking at zines because, well, people aren't normally buying poetry that's, that's well published. There's not a lot of people publishing poetry for sad reasons. Uh, but people are willing to buy a zine of it. People are very happy to pick up a zine of poetry. Uh, and it was a great way for people to share their stuff. I didn't make anything back then. But uh, let's see, my, my current girlfriend, she made lots of zines back in, back in the day. And she's uh, a big inspiration to me. And she's a big uh, supporter of my work. And so she's kind of making sure that I make the right choices when I'm making my zines. Uh, the only zine I ever actually made, like a physical zine, was during Metatopia, Alex Roberts ran a session about how to avoid con drop, which is the drop in emotion uh, that you experience after convention. And we made a zine on how to avoid it. And then they published it and they printed it out at the convention. And so that's the only zine that I've been part of so far. Beyond your Kickstarter one. Beyond my Kickstarter one. And I'm going to say it. I think that the current digital market on itch.io has a lot to do with the zine uh, scene, which you, like, as you said, I feel like my stuff that I've been publishing before, it may not like have the same form factor, but I would call them zines. Yeah. Yeah. I know uh, of a few people that publish digital zines. And I think we've seen this in um, too. Um, Gauntlet has the Codex, which is mm-hmm. effectively a digital zine, but I also know of um, uh, NB Life, which publish a online zine and also, I think, do physical prints occasionally. Um, and so uh, you, you do have this thing where some zines are digital, and some scenes are like entirely digital and some scenes are mm-hmm. kind of digital. Uh, and so you get this blurring of what is a zine. Like, could you do a zine quest? I mean, probably not. I haven't looked at the uh, rules for making mm-hmm. a zine quest project, but could you do a zine quest project that has no physical rewards? It's just a digital zine. Um, I think you could. Mm-hmm. I mean, and if I did, I would definitely lay it out so that you could print it if you wanted to. But yeah. I feel like you could make a digital-only uh, zine um, easily, and it could become popular. Um, I think Absolutely. There's also there's a couple of other RPG scenes that are floating around now on itch that just sort of started. Um, so yeah, sort of interesting uh, how how we're seeing these two mediums come together. Mm-hmm. Um, how is your Kickstarter doing at the moment and do you what do you think uh how have how have you how do you think running this the Kickstarter has changed how you will make projects in the future? I think that's probably a better question than how's your project doing? Because that's super like that's like is the game fun? It's like, well, yeah, I guess. Um I think a more concrete question is how has it changed the way you will do projects in the So I think yeah, overall 
I'm looking at, I'm looking at my itch right now. I made uh, my gross revenue on itch.io so far has been about $400. My the money I've made on Kickstarter so far in 7 days is over $1000 and that's just a huge difference in scale. I mean, I'm going to lose probably 80% of the money I've made off Kickstarter into printing costs and Kickstarter fulfillment costs and shipping. Yeah, because, wow. Yeah. Jesus, that's maybe, maybe, uh 80% is big. Uh but maybe more like 50 or 60% of that yeah. will be spent onto uh, printing stuff out because paper is expensive, toner is expensive, staples cost money, uh, and then I have to ship it, and shipping tape adds up. Adds are up you shipping fast. overseas, or are you only shipping United States? I'm shipping overseas, but people who are getting overseas have to pay an extra $3. Right. Because I just can't afford it otherwise. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's fair. Uh, but it's still... It's going to be, I'm going to probably make a, an amount of profit equal to the amount of money I've made so far in my game publishing life. And I'll be able to use this money to, as seed money for a future Kickstarter, Hopefully. which will be larger in scale. Yeah. It takes money to run the Kickstarter. Like, that, that's the thing that, that gets to me. It you takes money run to run the Kickstarter, and it also takes money to, like, you also have to pay Kickstarter. Kickstarter takes cuts yeah. of your work, which is, I think, something that people that haven't uh, people that don't haven't run Kickstarters and have only backed Kickstarters might mm-hmm. not really be aware of the fact that Kickstarter takes a cut of your yeah. profit, which is to run a kick- somewhat reasonable. Yeah, but trying to run a Kickstarter without at least one big piece of art that's really gorgeous, without a video, is going to get you a lot less uh, distance in towards a, in towards a, towards making a big goal. Uh, and so you kind of need that seed money to run a Kickstarter. And that's kind of my intention for this, uh, to take the money, to make my profit from this and to put directly into uh, commissioning art uh, for a larger Kickstarter to be launched sometime in the future. Do you have a larger project in mind? Is there I something do. that you're working on? Do you want to share any of that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Depends on what you mean by working on. I've been thinking about it for well, probably... Well, I, I guess I would say, is there a specific project you have in mind when you talk about using this money that you've generated towards another project? Like when I yes. think about the first project I'm going to kickstart, um, probably the only project I'll ever kickstart, <laughs> um, it's my large mech game that I've been working on since like two. 2017, 16, late 2016, I think, maybe. Something like that. Whenever Lancer, um, whenever Lancer 0.2 came out is when I started. <laughs> so my favorite Dungeons and Dragons setting back in second edition was Ravenloft. Ravenloft is a terrible fit for Dungeons and Dragons. It doesn't make any sense to run in Dungeons and Dragons. And I've been looking for horror games ever since. And like... There's Dread, but Dread is going for a specific kind of horror. It's a slasher horror game. You have Ten Candles, which is pretty good, uh, but you also have to manage the candles, and it's a little light. I'm very much a mechanics person. I like games where the mechanics drive the genre. So I'm working on a mechanically rich horror game, and I have pages of notes, lots of ideas. I am publishing a series about designing for game feel right now on my blog, that is basically to get to the point where, okay, here's how we make a horror game. I want to take that, and I want to make a Ravenloft-style setting game uh, that uses real horror mechanics, that really 
generate the sense of dread that even dread doesn't really make a lot of dread. It, it makes tension, which is different. Um, and so I want to make a horror game. Yeah. I feel like horror is in the West, at least. in a, Well, in North America and Australia and Britain. I feel like horror is the second largest genre of RPGs. It is very much fantasy in the style of D&D and yeah. then horror and then, I guess, superheroes? Yeah. <laughs> and then sci-fi is such a fragmented genre in <laughs> RPGs as to fit into every other genre. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then every everything else. Uh I think horror is maybe bigger. I think Japan might have a much larger horror demographic. I'm yeah. not 100% sure. It's I think old. Call of Cthulhu, Call of Cthulhu is the best-selling RPG in Japan. Probably. Anyway, uh, so yeah, I think a horror game is a great idea in terms of uh, in terms of market to capture, but yeah. also it sounds like you're really passionate about it. You've got that hankering to make it happen. Yes. Um, so yeah, I hope that that happens. What is as sort of a rounding out question, what is a project that you have always wanted to make, but you're still kind of need to build more skills before you do it? A project that you, a project essentially that you have decided, well, I can't make that yet. So I've got to make all these other things so that I can have the skill to then make. I've never, I'm very ambitious in terms of my skills. Well, that's I good. feel very confident in my skills. I don't feel very confident in terms of my resources. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, don't have, I don't have enough money. I don't have enough connections. And that kind of limits what I can do. But I feel like I, feel like I, can, I, can, I can make pretty much anything long enough out. There's so many games that I want to make. But that's like, I know I have the skills somewhere. But I don't know what I need to do to develop them. And like, do I want to... And then, then art, bu- art budgets come up. And it's yeah. like, oh, that's another thing. But I feel pretty confident that I could... With enough time, with enough budget, with enough support from people, I can make I can make anything, even right now. Yeah, cool. I think that that is a very good answer to that question. Um, it has been a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, if people want to check out uh, more of your work, where can they find that? See, I'm on uh, itch.io as Goat Song Publishing. Uh, I do my blog and my game theory uh, on... Uh, Goat Song RPG on WordPress, and my Kickstarter is the New Tales of Oz. Fantastic! Uh, there will be links to all of those uh, down below. Uh, and if you want to hear more interviews like this, we have a whole bunch of them. I over forty interviews with game makers and various industry uh, adjacent people uh, about how they uh, make their art uh, and how they make their games. Uh, and you can find that all by clicking on the interview tag, or if you're on SoundCloud or Spotify, you can go to the interviews playlist, uh, which should be there. Uh, and if you liked this uh, content, if you liked the show, please uh, consider supporting uh, me on Patreon. Uh, Insert Quest here is made uh, with the generous support of my uh, patrons. Um, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, I hope that your Kickstarter goes well uh, and that uh, you get the funding you need to make it happen. Um, uh, and it was 
again, a pleasure to have you on. Uh, to everyone else, thank you for listening. Uh, farewell from the past. I'm Ray. <laughs>